Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra. We pay our respects to elders from all nations and to their elders past, present and future. listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. We're thrilled to be back for 2020, ready to bring you more author talks, panel discussions, book reviews, cultural forums and recommendations. The holidays may be officially over, but if you're anything like us, you're still looking for books you can read sprawled out in the park, at the beach or on the train while you plan your next break from work. Something with a bit of romance, a bit of comedy and a good heart. With that in mind, we're thrilled to bring you our Coordinator of Community Learning and Partnerships, Kylie Carlson, interviewing Graham Simpson. The best-selling author appeared at Richmond Theatrette last year. He's too prolific to name all his books, but he's best known for The Rosie Project and sequels. His third Don Tillman book, The Rosie Result, features in this discussion. Introduced by a short performance from Tom Middleditch, Graham discussed the autism myths he hoped to challenge with The Rosie Result, diagnosing or not diagnosing his characters, and the challenges in getting even a best-selling novel turned into a film. This is an edited recording. So welcome to Richmond Theatre and Library, one of the five libraries in the city of Yarra. My name is Natasha and I'm the Community Learning and Partnerships, Partnerships Officer here at Yarra Libraries. So before we commence the in-conversation, I would like to introduce a really special guest performer, uh, Tom Middleditch is a playwright, director, relaxed performance consultant, and in his free time, he is autistic. He's dedicated himself to exploring autism as a performed thing and, and understanding it better through theatre and art. Um, so please give a very warm welcome to Tom. sort of ugly hacking coughs at any point. Just imagine that they're all deliberate and you find them really moving. Okay. I'm not going to explain what I'm about to do. And then I will. You feel as if the if of the feel that has left the moment and travel. Not to dismiss the experience, oh God. Oh God, oh God. This follows on to the main event where you have, but not so fast in so much as you have made the moment exist as a moment in and of nothing more than what it could have otherwise made itself to be. But there we see, there we see, oh God, oh God, oh God. I do not know what the skin that has taken my mind as I jump between the lines, the point of the Mandelbrot and the abyss. I am the abyss. That is the jump. Oh God, oh God, oh God. And I know what I refer to. You know what we refer to. I have the best references. The reference is their reference that makes itself known beyond anything in itself. I don't think, but not so fast. I cannot be held to ransom in this moment between the pieces. 
leaves of the Mandelbrot, and here we live still with no life of living to be within, and I am the failing of the arrival. Can I count on your counting and the ends in my feeling to be sure? I can count on you for nothing else but to count what you see that is the Mandelbrot at the point that is me, beyond what has been made to make making worth a made worthy nature. Oh God, oh God, oh God, yes, you know what I mean here, but cannot hope to touch, for we are merely the echoes of the work. Even the work became echoes of itself, reaching towards death, defined merely by the life, simply being the being of the being, and yet we, as we, attempt to word the things, wording things, betwixt the picks of my mind, mind of category, jumping between the peaks, oh God, oh God, oh God, and I look back, and there are broken children behind me who are me, they are my fault, I am no jumper, but one has jumped, like the jumpers of old who only existed since the wild boys came home to be named, and in this itself, regarding the self as a broken thing of words, articulating the nature of my uninterrupted being in and of myself. And now, an explanation of what just happened. <laughs> so, as was said in the intro, I'm a, a playwright. Uh, not unemployed now, though, so that's nice. And what you just heard was from a play that I wrote called Alexithymia. Alexithymia is a condition experienced by about 85% of autistic people where you can't put words to your emotions. Now, not many people know about this. It's a subclinical thing. It's still going through a lot of testing trials. People have written about it extensively, but most often it is in autistic people and trauma victims. What I just read to you there was an attempt to put into words a meltdown, an autistic meltdown. We've probably all had some experience of them. Hell, maybe some of the people in the room have had them. And the overriding theme always feels like failure, always feels like a, something has broken, when really it's just a fit. It's just every idea you've ever had at once overwhelming you and you don't have the linear sentences to be able to explain it all, to be able to get it out as meaning in the world at large. Now, to be perfectly honest, I have not planned what I was going to say after this point. <laughs> the reason for that is I don't write speeches. I, I don't. I don't like doing it. I prefer to just find inspiration in the moment. But this is the fourth time that I've opened one of these. Thank you so much, Graham, for giving me this attempt. I need it. Um, but <laughs> what's important there is I think there is a great amount of value in not really planning this far forward. Because I've known as an autistic person that there's only so much you can plan for before chaos takes over. And then all you've got to be able to do is look to the words that you've already got. Look to the thing you've already got there. Basically, that's what Graham did when he was writing the Rosie results. Sorry, spoilers. But... He looked at the text that he'd already got and brought forward other elements that we had all been saying were there all along. That's kind of what I'm trying to do with my art as well, as I take the things that I've already felt and try and put to words and go, here you go, and you go, oh, okay. I think I get you better now. Maybe not, but I feel it. And really, that's the most we can do through literature, through art. But then, that's kind of everything, isn't it? It kind of is like everything we need to be able to do is just understand everyone else. And with the success of this kind of literature, with putting autism right up in the front, where it's no longer a dirty word, it's no longer a child hushed under a staircase because the neighbours think they are possibly an alien, or at the very least a chimp. We're not ashamed of it. 
It's just another book. I mean, it's not just another book, but you know. <laughs> it is just another part of the literary output. And coming from like 25 years, seeing maybe one film that explores autism, and now coming to now where there are genuinely autistic creators coming out everywhere, that a story like this can be as big as it is, well, it's just good that people finally want to care, but they now have an access point. And now, the main event of the evening. Who do I hand off to now? I don't want to talk further along. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Because for the second time tonight, I'm usurping Natasha, because I think the next thing on there says, Natasha thanks Tom. But I'd like to do that myself because, and I have actually arranged this with Natasha, um, I'd like to do that myself because Tom, as he said, has done four events um, for us, opened them in Melbourne, um, and this is sort of the last of that, of that series. And the reason, the motivation for this uh, was not just that Tom's a great guy to have doing an event, but what got us thinking in this direction was the autistic community have a great slogan, many great slogans, but one of them is nothing about us without us. And on this book tour, because the rosy result talks quite directly about autism, we thought, why should I be up on stage as someone who doesn't identify as autistic, talking about autism without some representation in the autistic community? And we've tried to have an opening person like Tom, and we had... Um, uh, no, no, I'm trying to think of the first name, Kerr, um, sorry? Clem. No, Clem Basto as well. Kay Kerr, okay, we had three of them there, just like that. A little, just a little trick to get the audience participation going. So, and we've had Ian Burkus, but Kay Kerr, for example, who's a text author, coming up with, a, and identifies as autistic, um, coming up with a book, um, and just laid them in the aisles with a reading from her book in Brisbane. So it has been, universally a great thing to do in terms of making the events more more interesting i think for everybody but tom has been by far the biggest contributor doing four events and i therefore wanted to both both thank you and do a little bit of stereotype busting <laughs> because that is a bottle of gin and when the rosie project first came out a psychiatrist said to me you know you got almost everything right about don and i said what do you mean almost everything right and he says I've got a patient that, well, he said, in fact, you made him a drinker, and Aspies don't drink. Lies. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, I've got this patient, and he doesn't drink, and it just shows this idea that you say someone's a little unusual in some ways, you would think that everything is a result of that particular factor or category. Um, so let me say, I hope we got this right, and that Aspies do drink. Um, this and, one does. And, and, and I hope it's, and it matches your your signature outfit, so... I even guess that I only drink gin, so... Yeah, all, all, of, all of the above. So many, many thanks, Tom, for what you've been doing. Thank you. And without further ado, at last, it's Natasha. Thanks so much, Tom. That was great. So, now to the main event that you've all come here for. I've been asked not to give too long an introduction to Graham, for Graham, uh, but I don't think he really needs one. So I will just highlight again, though, that, you know, he has authored the books that you obviously all have read and love and 
The Rosary Resort is the third and final instalment in the Rosie series. In 2012, Graham won the Victorian Premier's unpublished manuscript award for his book, The Rosie Project. The novel was published by Text Publishing to critical acclaim in Australia in January 2014. It has since sold more than three and a half million copies in over 40 countries around the world, so that's pretty amazing. I also want to introduce Kylie Carlson, who will be the chair for this evening's In Conversation event. Kylie has worked in the library sector for over seven years with a background in PR, marketing, corporate training and private enterprise. She, sh she changed her career into libraries when her two boys, Jake and Jonah, were diagnosed with autism and ADHD. Kylie and her partner Wayne changed their career paths to focus on their children's disabilities and special needs to help them meet their various life challenges. Um, Kylie is also the coordinator of community learning and partnerships here at Yarra, overseeing programs, the Ewing Trust and Yarra Libraries. Um, she's a passionate advocate for inclusive practices in libraries and she has helped lead, lead and develop initiatives and programming around um, inclusiveness for children on the spectrum. So yeah, without further ado, please welcome Graham and Kylie. to see you all. So I'm going to throw, I'm not going to talk a lot because this is not about me, this is about Graham. Um, and we had a little chat earlier about uh, how we wanted to start the event and we're going to start with a reading. So Don Tillman would say, obviously there's only one possibility for a reading which is the beginning of the book because otherwise any other reading would require knowledge that had come previously. So here we go. <laughs> I was standing on one leg shucking oysters when the problems began. If I had not been a scientist, conscious of the human propensity to see patterns where they do not exist, I might have concluded that I was being punished by some deity for the sin of pride. Earlier that afternoon, I had been completing a performance review form and was presented with the question, what do you consider to be your key strengths? It was a vague construction which specified neither context nor level of generalisation. Expertise in genetics was the obvious answer, but this was surely implied by the job title, Professor of Genetics. My knowledge of mixed soil liposarcoma would soon be of minimal relevance, as my research project in that area was nearing completion. Objectivity and intelligence might suggest that I thought some academics lacked these attributes, which was true, but probably tactless. I needed to avoid tactlessness. I was still searching for an answer when Rosie arrived home. What are you doing in your pyjamas, she said. Preparing dinner, which I'm time-sharing with solving a problem, and single-leg dips. I mean, why are you wearing pyjamas? There was a minor cooking incident involving an exploding chestnut. I was attempting to speed up the process by increasing the temperature, hence the oil on various surfaces. I indicated the splashes on the ceiling. My clothes were also affected. I avoided further loss of time by switching directly to pyjamas rather than putting on an intermediate costume. You haven't forgotten we've got Dave and Sonia for dinner. Of course not. It's the second Wednesday of the month, the day I changed my toothbrush head. <laughs> Rosie performed her impression of my voice, a sign that she was in a good mood. Guests, pyjamas, not a valid combination. Dave and Sonia have seen me in pyjamas on the Cape Canaveral trip. Don't remind me. If it's time to change my costume, I should devote it to the performance review form. I explained the problem. 
just write whatever you wrote last year. I didn't do it last year, or the year before, or the 12 years at Columbia, and you haven't had to do a performance review. I just don't complete the form. There's always some high priority task. Unfortunately, David Borenstein insisted. It's not his desk tomorrow. He's threatened to take some unspecified punitive action. You're stuck on the question about strengths. Correct. Just say problem solving. It's a good answer and it won't come back to bite you. If you don't find a cure for cancer, they're not going to say, but you said you were a good problem solver. You've encountered the same question only about 20 times in the last month. Rosie's current medical research project was also finishing and she was seeking a more senior position. It was proving difficult as most roles involve clinical work. The argument was, I'm a crap physician but a good researcher. Why waste time on stuff I'm not good at? I had applied the same logic to the performance review form. Presumably you also gave the optimum answer, I said. Problem solving. I usually say team player, but in your case... <laughs> Rosie laughed. I'll finish filling it out and you'll have time to make yourself respectable. Teamwork, see? She must have noticed my expression. You can review it when I'm done. As I processed the remaining oysters, I reflected on Rosie's suggestion. It was satisfying that my partner recognised an attribute that I had not previously articulated. I was a good problem solver. I had the advantage of an atypical, and the word used by others was weird, approach to analysing and responding to situations. Over my 25-year career, it had enabled me to overcome day-to-day -day obstacles and initiate major breakthroughs. It also delivered benefits to my personal life. At 20, I had been a computer science student socially incompetent even by the standards of 20-year-old computer science students with zero prospect of finding a partner. Now, largely due to the deliberate application of problem-solving techniques, I was employed in a stimulating and well-paid job, married to the world's most beautiful and compatible woman, Rosie, and father to a talented, happy 10-year-old child, Hudson, who was showing signs of becoming an innovative problem-solver himself. <laughs> lovely to hear the voice of an author reading their work as well. I'm really delighted in that because when you hear it through your voice, you hear different things because of what you emphasise and stuff like that. Yeah, it's actually quite strange for me listening to Dan O'Grady who um, narrates the audiobooks. Anybody heard the audiobooks? Yeah. Um, people generally love Dan O'Grady and I didn't even meet him until um, he was working on the Rosie Results. He actually was resident in the UK then and his version of the book was so popular that normally each territory does its own version. They said, look, Dan's authentic, we'll take him. And all around the world, it was the Dan, the Dan O'Grady version. And actually, it was quite fun because I've never really listened to the books, to be honest. I was just not saying I've got around to. But he's moved back to Australia. I met him while he was doing the Rosie results, and we had a great chat and so forth, and I recorded that. And I was doing a talk just like this in Adelaide, and I explained to people, I said, look, it's funny for me doing a reading for the book when I actually chose not to do the reading for the audio book because I thought a professional actor would do a better job, and certainly they do, particularly in other voices and so forth. So I said, yeah, it's a bit embarrassing me reading this. And I just started off reading it, and then a voice came from the audience, and Dan O'Grady came out of the audience, came up on the stage and, and read the rest of the reading. So it was a bit of, it was a bit of fun, yeah. So, did we do a, a straw poll on how many people have read this book? Because I don't want to spoil anything with some, some of my questions. So, can we just have a raise of hands? Okay, all right, cool, beautiful. So, I'm going to take Graham back a little bit before we actually talk about this book. So, before becoming a writer... You before had a, we have the spoilers, eh? <laughs> 
You had a successful career in the IT industry as a data modeler, including obtaining your PhD in this field. So what drew you to writing, or was it always part of your long-term life plan? Always wanted to write a novel, the same as probably about 80% of the people in this audience. Just like I always wanted to play cricket for Australia and, you know, <laughs> and be a rock star and all those sorts of things. It was a dream, it wasn't anything real until when I was 50 I actually enrolled in, in the course in screenwriting. I think until, I actually, yeah, until you actually do something, it's only a dream. When you start practicing it and being serious about it, learning the techniques, then you can say you're serious about wanting it. So alongside the Rosie series, you've written a whole host of short stories. Can you tell us about your favourite short story? Ooh, um, you know, nobody's asked me that before. You get so used to getting asked the same questions all the time. Thank you, new question. Um, yeah, it's one that's probably my favourite would be a story called Like It Was Yesterday, um, which is a story set back it, it's actually a little bit of a precursor to the best of Adam Sharp about revisiting the past and about memory and, and how accurate it can be or not be. And it's a story that really um, I couldn't let go of about being unfairly punished when I was a seven-year-old. You know, corporal punishment at primary school. Let me tell you, kids who went to school, this is in New Zealand, where they had corporal punishment, never forget it. It makes a real impression on them. They talk about who was unfairly strapped. And I was unreasonably strapped because some girl dot me in when I was seven. And it just stuck in my head. And I wrote a story about it for the Age Short Story Award, and it didn't even get shortlisted. I'd been, been runner-up the previous year. And so we were still too close to it. And in the end, I imagined a sort of a sequel to that story as to somebody revisiting that time when they were older. And that was all imagination. Um, and I was just very pleased with that story. I eventually published it the Review of Australian Fiction, so it's a published story. And um, it was when I got in touch with one of the people I'd known at that age to see if they'd remembered it the same way, and he said, like it was yesterday. And so that became the, the title of the, of the story. So you've also co-authored the book Two Steps Forward with your wife, Professor Ambus, who's in the audience who you introduced before. Um, and we've been lucky enough to host her at Richmond Library for the, in the past. What was your process like working together as opposed to working solo? <laughs> it was really funny when we launched Two Steps Forward, um, I was the actual launch. Um, Brian Goldsmith, who's you know, a bit of a man about town, he used to run the underground club and, and so forth, was standing right beside me and he said to me, he said, but you've got to tell us, hold me, he says, you've got to tell us how the hell you and your wife managed to do this thing together without divorcing. And I mean, I think he's got four divorces under his belt, uh, so, <laughs> so he's probably a little more sensitive to these things. But um, look, call me crazy, call us both crazy, but when we got together, when we decided we were going to spend the rest of our lives together, we thought we might spend some of that doing stuff that we both enjoyed together. <laughs> crazy stuff! So we both, we both really love writing and we are, you know, even before we did Two Steps Forward and since Two Steps Forward, we have always collaborated. We plan to our books together. Even as we draft our books, we sit in the same room very often, and I'm sort of Anne's you know, human thesaurus, and she's my sort of, she's meant to be, my one-person appreciation society. How funny is this? Laugh, please. Um, and then we're each other's first and last readers, problem solvers, the whole thing. So the only thing that was different really about two steps forward was when it came to writing the draft, which is normally an individual thing that we do, it was like, well, we planned this book, who's going to write the draft? So we wrote two and wrote the entire book 
from the female point of view, from Zoe character point of view. I wrote the entire book from Martin, the male character's point of view, and we thought, you know what, we'll, we'll have the two books side by side, you buy them as a set, and you and your partner can sort of lie in bed reading the alternative <laughs> books and so forth. Anyway, Michael Hayward at Text Hooks was the dumbest idea we'd ever heard of, <laughs> which was a real shame because we'd already written the books. <laughs> but he was, of course, right. We, well, we, we thought he was mad too. So we went out to our close friends, first readers, and said, gave them the couples and said, read this. And they came back and they said, well, you know what we ended up doing? We ended up, every couple of chapters, we'd swap books. You weren't supposed to do that. So we realised what we needed was alternating chapters. So that's what we ended up doing. And had the thankless task of cutting and pasting the two books. And then I had the doubly thankless task of halving the length of it. Uh, because they had two full-size books worth. But that's, that's something the screenwriters are quite good at. So chopped it down and yeah, a few edits and there we were. You mentioned... Um the environment. What's what's your favourite writing environment? Oh, I have a particular favourite writing environment, but let me say that there's this whole thing about you know, what's your special place where you can write and, and which is which is fine to have a place that you like best. But if you say, Well that means I can't write anywhere else, I mean I write wherever I can and so does Anne because we both had professions in the past and Anne still does where you, you know, have to get work done, you're on a plane, you're at the airport, it doesn't matter, you, you do it, it's on your laptop. It doesn't mean it's your favourite place but let me tell you, when I was a database designer, nobody said, you know, are you in your special place for designing this database, you know, you feel alright, we don't mind if you bring it in late as long as you're comfortable and happy and wearing your, like, your lucky inspirational socks and so forth. Um, we're, we're much more tolerant of writers but it's work and you do it wherever you have to. Um, we've got a, a place that we've been living in for the last 18 months while we've been between houses in Fitzroy, and um, that, that's my favourite place to write. You know, sun going down, glass of wine in hand on the deck and so forth, but it's not always going to be like that. Sometimes it's going to be you're ragged and jaded after a, um, a conference or something, uh, you know, writers festival or something like that, and you're at the airport and you just open the lid and say, let's do some editing or some research. Let's just keep this thing going along. So do you have a favourite event that stands out you're talking about? Because you do a lot of um, author talks and conferences. Have you got a standout favourite event? Yeah, yeah, just one. We were in Salt Lake City, Anne and I, and it was almost Christmas and we, we in, in, the, in the US and we, we landed in Salt Lake City. How many putting in events for that? Came into and we got picked up at the airport and this is a blizzard. We said, how many people are going to be at this book event tonight? He said, well, I wouldn't expect too many, <laughs> etc. We made a special trip to Salt Lake City for this. And he picks us up from our hotel and the snow is piled up at the side of the road. And we arrive at the bookshop and there's fire burning inside and so forth. And they said, look, we're not, we've had a ton of cancellations, I'm afraid. But they had a pile of books, just an enormous pile of books. said that we had a whole lot of requests to people signed books. Well, I signed books and so forth. And as I was signing, exactly, people were filing in. They filled this whole place. It was multiple rooms, this, this bookshop. They had booze, and you know, in Salt Lake City, and I said, look, is it, can it be inappropriate in this sort of Mormon culture for me to be up you know, front having a ah, get the red. We were, were tolerant people here, they won't all drink, but so I had a glass of red in my hand. They had speakers in all the little, the little rooms in the shop, and it was just, there was so much love there on this cold, cold night that people had come in, and I reckon I signed 300 books that night. Um, it was just, just quite, quite extraordinary, and I'm, I've been back there twice, I didn't like the best of Adam Sharp much. There was some sex on that, so I didn't go back for Adam Sharp, but I'm going to be back there um, first week of June um, doing, doing this one. So we're going to talk a little bit about Don now, Don Tillman. 
So you've written previously that the character was inspired by people you met in the IT industry and their unique personalities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, people say, what research did you do on autism? And I say, 30 years in IT. And <laughs> to which I would add, and being in the radio club um, and being uh, doing a PhD in a science faculty and so forth, I met a lot of people who were, in retrospect, almost certainly on the autism spectrum, but because of the generation, look, I mean, I'm in my 60s now, um, weren't diagnosed and, and, and weren't seeking help for, for any difficulties they might be having because they would just say, look, I was a geek, whatever, and they were doing okay. Because I was meeting these people largely professionally and so forth, they, they were people who were sitting underneath the psychiatrist's radar, if you like, and I think many of our, our views of autism have been characterised by the people who sought help rather than by a lot of people out in their community who are doing, you know, relatively speaking, despite a lot of obstacles thrown at them, pretty well. So Don was based on characters I met in real life. I didn't say he was on the autism spectrum, although people, you know, what we would use back then was Asperger's, and, and I probably rather rudely, but to make a point, um, referred to Tom as, a, as an Aspie towards the end of the thing. I'm sure Tom would say he's on the autism spectrum, he's autistic these days. Um, but, but back then, um, people were saying to me, Don must have Asperger's syndrome. I thought, it's just not on my radar. It just wasn't something I was, I was thinking about. These were just people. So I, whilst I put the Aspie kids scene in there just to show that Don didn't think he was on the spectrum, or was at least in denial over it, I barely touched on it. I touched on it again in the second book, um, in the Rosie Effect, which is only a week, I say, a week, if only, a year later. Um, and there's a scene where Don is with a psychiatrist, and someone actually accuses him. Lydia says, insultingly, you, you're on the spectrum, you have Asperger's or something. And the psychiatrist steps in to defend Don and says, well, you've got a happy family life, you've got a good work life, you don't have any other big problems in your life, so you can't be autistic, because for me, autistic means you've got problems. And if you read the, the psychiatrist's Bible, DSM-5, it basically says you've got to have dysfunction in your life in order to be diagnosed. So Don says, well, good, I'm not there, and there it goes. In fact, it was, it wasn't until I was at a conference on, as it was then called, Asperger's Syndrome in Queensland, that, um, I fell into conversation with, oh, I was there as a keynote speaker, so I guess there was some sort of hint coming back to me that possibly people in that community saw Don as being on the spectrum, and certainly the autistic community had largely embraced Don as a sort of a positive role model out there, a positive exemplar, if you like, of autism. Um, I got into conversation with Tony Atwood, very well-known expert in the field, who you might have seen on Australian Story, and I said to Tony, look, Tony, I never say that Don's on the spectrum, because, you know, I'm not a clinician. And Tony said, well, I am, and Don Tillman has Asperger's syndrome. <laughs> so he made it official. And Tony Atwood, I don't know whether any of you read his books, but they're quite amazing. But he's quite controversial. We were talking about that before. He's quite a controversial figure. But um, when my son got diagnosed, I bought every single Tony Atwood book and read it, and he's been an um, amazing source of information for Look, me. Look, personally, I found him a lovely guy, um, and he is someone who has recommended the Rosie books to people um, who want to know what it's like to be on the spectrum because the textbooks tend to be, we observe the following behaviour, they're on the outside looking in, even movies and television, it's on the outside, you're seeing them but you're not inside them, whereas books like The Rosie Project, which are in first person, at least attempt, and I'm not always successfully, but I, I'm, what I'm attempting to do is to get inside the head of someone like Don Tillman. Um, 
so so he recommends he recommends the books but the, the controversial stuff is really that in the last few years certainly since the Rosie project was conceived and probably since it was published we've seen a really big rise in I think autism, not just the autism awareness um, but autism activism that um, people are out it's no longer something that people are, well there are still people who would be ashamed or unhappy with an autism diagnosis um, people who would use it as a pejorative as a you know, as a negative um, but far more, um, and if you draw parallels with other, with other movements, um, people are out and autistic and proud. Um, and that's got, come, with it's come a significant change in use of language. The autism community in, in general prefers I'm autistic to I have autism, which sounds a bit like I have cancer. You know, it sounds like I have something added on to me, some sort of disease or whatever. Um, so you know, the, the term Asperger's has largely been absorbed into, into autism. So, if you're, if you're still using the word Asperger's, you're making a little bit of a statement. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that, that Tony hasn't always won the approval of the activists um, who are looking to, to, push, it, to push it forward. Um, yeah. Interesting. So we're going to change from the autism a little bit for a minute. You've been quoted as saying that you are on a mission to make men read more novels. Can you talk a little bit about that quote? Yeah, I'm just looking at the audience tonight. <laughs> and, and, and I would say that men are underrepresented. And, and look, one of the things that really blew me away when I um, became a, a writer and started dealing with the publishing industry was how gendered the whole area is. That we, far more so than where I came from. Where I came from, it was in, in information technology and business consulting. No doubt there were issues around gender discrimination. So no doubt at all, but whoa, you go into publishing and gender is just visible everywhere. Sometimes in a you know, positive and negative sort of ways, I guess. Um, but you have the concept of most readers, most readers of fiction are women. There is a whole genre of women's fiction that is written only for women. You know, genre romance novels, virtually no men read those. And the number of men who write them are very, very, very limited. The makeup of publishing companies is, is very, very gendered. Um, and you know, so, so, I, so I found that interesting. But this idea where there's a lot of affirmative action, and the Stellar Prize is a classic example of trying to make, the argument is we've got to really support women authors because, for God's sake, most readers are women. And I was like, well, okay, but let's not take that as a given. That's not necessarily a good thing in itself. We've got another problem that we're not addressing, which is not enough men are reading, if you like, that something stops men reading fiction. And my picture is that young men read fiction and older, middle-aged men don't. Um, and we get a vicious circle going here because your publisher, and let me tell you, your publisher, editors will say to you, you've got to think about our female audience. So, you know, change this male and make him more lovable or, or whatever it might be, less realistic possibly, because it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, it's true. I mean, writing the best of Adam Sharp, we don't want to hear his dirty thoughts. You know? We'd like to see him as, you know, tall, dark, handsome, and so forth. And lots of really gendered feedback I get from editors who are almost exclusively female as well. Um, this is all about our women readers. And what happens is you end up modifying, a lot of people end up writing, writing for women in the end. They're writing for a female audience. So a man does finally pick up a fiction book and he's, whoa, the, the, the portrayal of this bloke is a bit, uh, a bit basic. He's uh, this Scottish doctor whose wife has died and he's looking for love and plain Jane from down the road will be just perfect, you know, etc. You know, these stereotypes that, um, that for a guy reading, really, so that's, that's not much of a stereotype, you know, it's not much of a character for me. 
So I'm really keen to write books that, that men will uh, and women will enjoy reading. When I put the Rosie Project up, they said, who's going to read this book? And I said, people, I guess, you know. And that, that's actually turned out to be true. Bill Gates is a, is a big fan. I know I get young you know, people, teenagers, reading the books. Yeah, these are human stories, and a lot of human stories are quite universal. I think this is a universal human story. Absolutely. I agree with that. How does it feel when people say that you've written a new literary hero? I hope so. <laughs> I wouldn't like to have written an old literary hero. No, no, I mean, I think, I think the thing that makes Don a little bit different is that he is autistic and a romantic hero. Um, and that has not been, you know, I'm not saying it's never been done before at all, but um, you know, I, have, I have people, women, largely, um, writing to me and saying, I'd marry Don Tillman, where can I find a real Don Tillman? I think it's, it's a wonderful thing, because so often autistic people have been represented in fiction, particularly comedic fiction, only as a source of laughter. And, and if I can just sort of take that, I mean, there's always a moral question about the fact that sometimes we laugh at Don Tillman, make no mistake. We laugh with him sometimes, but we laugh at some of the stuff that he does. And I'll give you a whole lot of rationalisations. I'll say that we're looking at this, what we laugh at is the unexpected, rather than being a goose. We laugh at the fact that he's the third guy who walked into the pub and did something that the other two guys didn't, who were the neurotypical people. We don't have to see those two guys. We know what they'll do. We just see Don doing something weird. And sometimes it's weird in the way, like, it's, you idiot. And otherwise, it's like, you're the smart guy in the room. Why doesn't everybody do it that way? But really, my argument about the ethics of what I've done here is when you get to the end of these books, how do you feel about Tom Tillman? Do you feel he's a figure of fun? Do you feel he's a decent human being? Is he someone you'd like to have as the Prime Minister? Is it, or someone, do, do you, would he be a buddy? Is he a good person? And I think that almost universally people say, Don Tillman's a good person. And um, so we've had some laughs with him and that sort of thing, but when all said and done, he's a good person. Reading it through my lens, I guess, being a parent with kids on the spectrum, and I, I spoke to Graham about this earlier, it was interesting because I struggled with the first few chapters because it was very stereotypical. And what you respond to as a parent with children, people say, well, your son must be like Rain Man or your son is like the good doctor. And so you spend a lot of your time fighting the stereotypes and just saying, see the person, don't, don't feed into those stereotypes. So I found the first few chapters, I was like, oh, this is sort of a little bit jarring to me because it's feeding those stereotypes, but I persevered with it. But Graham did something really lovely in it where he put in italics after different things, like an autistic person doesn't show humour. And, and so he was challenging the stereotypes throughout the novel. And he really, like, it really won me over because it was like, yes, this is what I want to read. This is, this is really touching me. This is really relatable. I related to the Don's voice because it's the voice that often my children speak in. And, and you talk about Don being a truth teller and Hudson being a truth teller, and they do say it straight. But not always. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Don can lie with you. Yeah, Don can lie. He may not be very good at it, but he, he's not somehow wired that it's impossible for him to lie. And he's not wired that it's impossible for him to drink. In fact, he seems to be wired the opposite way. He's, a, he's very on the edge of, I'd say, of having a drinking problem and so on. But what I particularly wanted to hit was probably the, the most pervasive myth about autism which is that autistic people lack empathy. Yes. You talk to people who don't know a lot about it or who just heard about autism, and you say, what defines autism? Well, there's all sorts of people who can be a bit robotic, a bit inhuman, you know, subhuman, but they, they lack empathy. 
that's the thing. They don't care, and they say they don't care for other people as well, or they don't have emotions. None of these things have any decent basis in, in reality. Autistic people may not be so good at picking up on social cues, but typically those are the social cues of neurotypical people. I've got a, the guy who did the most to inspire Don Tillman said to me one time, he said, God, I had to work with this guy, this programmer, and they said, he's got Asperger's syndrome, he's really hard to communicate with. My friend said, I've never worked with an easier guy to work with. <laughs> with tribes. I was in China a couple of weeks ago, it was you know, three weeks or so ago, and you know, the cultural gap was a real problem sometimes. Different language, different ways of communicating things, different assumptions, and so on. Okay, you can be wired just a little bit differently, and it doesn't mean you, you it, it's mutual. You know, neurotypical people have just as much trouble understanding people on the spectrum, there's not getting, they don't get empathy and so on, as the other way around. And that's interesting because one of the things that I pulled out to read was, it's a passage in the book and I'll read this. Whether or not Hudson met the diagnostic, diagnostic criteria for autism, it was encouraging to know that individual traits would be treated with understanding. I had observed that neurotypicals criticised autistic people for lacking empathy towards them, but seldom made any effort to improve their own empathy towards autistic people. And that, when I read that, I had tears running down my face. I laughed through this book, I really did laugh through it. But near the end, there were tears because it was like, that's so true, and that's the battle that uh, I've seen my children go through, exactly how you've described it. And um, you hit it on the head and I was like, oh, finally, something that represents what I've experienced and what my children have experienced as well. And I really love that. And the theme that came out through the book for me, and we talked about that, that overall sort of theme, was a, a theme of acceptance, a theme of love. And so did you want to talk about that? Because we talked a bit about where that was coming from in your writing. Look, I, I think there is, you know, one of the extreme views about autism, one view says accept it, it's part of our world, and the other view says it's a fault, cure it. And you know, when we talk, and, and the arguments get, you know, are not as simple as that, because, well, some people have a black and white view on either of it, but very few people um, at the very low need, few would argue that people at the very low needs end of the scale, need, you know, like my friend who inspired the Don Tillman character, or indeed Don Tillman, need a cure. But on the other hand, and a lot of people would say that kids with very high needs, perhaps without speech and so forth, need some form of intervention to give them speech, etc. And these are really, really controversial topics. And I think, and Anne, my wife and I, sat down and worked some of these things through. Anne's a psychiatrist and said, yeah, if we had a kid who had no speech and we were given the possibility of an intervention such as applied behaviour analysis, which is very controversial, certainly in the, the autism activism community, um, that, that we had a good chance of giving them speech, and without us they might never speak, but, we, but this intervention could be really traumatic for the child, would you do it or not? And I've got to tell you, our starting point was they're going to be traumatised whichever way they go in life, you might as well give them the treatment and give them you know, have that form of trauma rather than trauma of never speaking. Now, with my interactions that I have with the autism community, I'm far more open to the idea that there are many, many ways of living in this world and that not being able to speak, there are people out there who I communicate with on Twitter and so forth who have either no speech or from time to time don't have speech, who are making 
good places in the world that are happy with who they are. And I think you know, it's, it's a tough stretch sometimes to stretch to some of these things that we've traditionally seen as really severe disabilities and say that with some acceptance of society, people can lead full and interesting and valuable and productive lives um, with those disabilities rather than with what can often be cures, so-called cures, that, that, that can have them committing suicide later in life, and that's no cure. So one of my favourite elements to Don's character is his love of alcohol. Now, now we're talking. It was getting a bit heavy for a comedy, wasn't it? <laughs> and I loved his uh, ambition to open his little cocktail bar. So I'm not spoiling anything there. And I love that you called it the library. We've well, heard... of course. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fantasy for you, isn't it? That's it? Well, I want a bar in the library. That is one of my fantasies, I can tell you. It's going to happen. <laughs> But we have heard that you once had a small wine business of your own, and I know many readers are always fascinated by the convergence of art and life and vice versa. Booze. Yeah. So how often have you drawn on your own life experiences to inspire these series? Oh, I've drawn really heavily on my own life experiences. You, I think all authors do. Um, it doesn't mean that the characters are, are them. I'm not Don Tillman. In fact, though, if you wanted to pick the character... OK, I'll come back to that in a second and tell you which character in all my books is most like me. Um, but it's not Don. Um, but you, you, you write to some degree what you know, and if you're going to pick on something, um, like in, in The Best of Adam Sharp, I had to give him a job. I wanted to give him a techie job, so I made him a database administrator because I knew I could nail it. There was no way that I'd get anything wrong about the life of a database administrator, and nobody really cared what he was. It was just that I'd get that much, that much right. And I think you're more, um, more subtly, your own values infiltrate what you're writing. You, 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 if you sit out there, this is it's a book about autism, but I didn't sit out to preach. I didn't sit down to write this book and say, oh, I want to preach acceptance and tolerance of diversity and acceptance of it. I sat down and I want to tell a good story um, that does no harm because I was now aware that I had a readership and, and I didn't want to perpetuate incorrect stereotypes or anything like that. But ultimately, you write a story and your own values just find their way into that story. It certainly, they did very, very strongly with the Rosie Project and so on. Um, but I was going to tell you the character most like me. The toughest part of writing the Rosie result was writing Hudson, the 11-year-old, the who wasn't necessarily 11. He needed to be a kid. Um, and my difficulty was, um, you know, many of you in the audience will have kids or grandchildren or whatever, relatives who are, you know, I don't have any that are that sort of age, really. There was a real danger that I would write Don's son as, say, 11, and they would say, an 11-year-old wouldn't do that. It's more like a 13-year-old or more like a 7-year-old or, or whatever. Just be hard to get it right. And then I remembered that the year of my life when I was 11 was very, still very, very sharp and clear in my mind. And basically, I used myself as the template for Hudson. Um, that does beg an obvious question, I know. Um, <laughs> so I used, I used myself as the template for, Hus for Hudson. And I even wrote an essay. Um, Lee Kaufman, who's got a book out at the moment called Imperfect was putting an anthology of essays together, which will be published on the 1st of June, called Split, from Australian authors, and asked me to contribute an essay. I thought, well, I'll write about when I was 11, because that will help me remember that time better, will inform this book. Let me tell you, that essay, 6,000 words, took more effort than that whole book, took more out of me, and I'm less happy with it than I am with the novel. I'm still frustrated with it. 
but it hugely informed the novel. That, that, that journey of exploration of my own life hugely improved my ability to write, to write Hudson. So do you want to talk about the bird? About the witch? <laughs> the bird. The bird. The dissecting of the bird? No. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to read the book to find out about that. <laughs> oh, I can tell you something weird. There is a pigeon that dies and gets dissected in this, in this story. And the English wanted to put a, a pigeon on the front. And, and I said, the pigeon dies! The pigeon dies! And they wanted a little football scarf, so it was clearly representing Hudson. I say, like, the bird smashes into a window, dies, and gets dissected. This is, you're trying to equate that with Hudson, not to mention the, the unfortunate association that some would make, because B.F. Skinner, the original sort of behaviourist, used pigeons as his... So they're like, God, the last thing what is it we're equating Hudson with the pigeons. So I think it's a seagull on the end, which... Seagull, whatever. It would never fly in Australia, but there you go. I'd just like to say thank you to Graham for his generosity this evening, and thank you for coming out. We'll give him a big round of applause. And send him back to And I should have done it this at the beginning, but thank you, Kylie. Thank you, the team here at the library. And a huge thanks to Chris, um, who's come along tonight from Avenue Bookstore. Three branches now, is that right, Chris? Yeah, including one here in Richmond. You know, award-winning bookshop. But by golly, like libraries, bookshops are more than they appear to be. That Libraries are not just for lending books. Bookshops are not just for selling them. They're part of the community, and they've been that tonight. So thanks very much. Graham Simpson in conversation with Carly Carlson at Richmond Theatre Red in 2019. The in conversation began with a performance from Tom Middleditch. If you enjoyed this talk, or the Rosie books more generally, you're probably someone who enjoys a good rom-com. So join us in February at our libraries for a month to romance. We will screen classic romances from It Happened One Night to You've Got Mail. In early March, we'll cap it all off with experts Minnie Dark and Tony Jordan, discussing the romantic tropes they love and love to hate today. If you're just keen to read The Rosie Result or any of Graham's earlier work, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises to be there whenever you really, really need to tell someone about the book you've just fallen head over heels in love with. So long as you keep the spoilers to yourself. Happy reading! Alright, 6.30 start time, greetings. Who's read The Rosie Project? Hands up. Hold on, who hasn't read The Rosie Project? Chris, did you spot them? Okay. Because you are going to be suckers for the end of the evening for sure. Okay, if you've read The Rosie Project, you know that Don Tillman has zero tolerance for late cups, okay? And we all know that authors only write themselves as characters, so I've equally got zero tolerance for latecomers, and we should make a start immediately. On the other hand, accommodating ourselves to the realities of the real world, we know there are probably some people out there dealing with Richmond peak hour traffic and so forth. So I thought what we might do before we formally got underway is just as a small reward for those people who turned up on time, um, I'll answer the question I get most often asked at these sorts of events. I've already been asked about it a couple of times today, so it happens, and get that out of the way. And then, if at the, in question time, if anyone puts their hand up and asks that question, we will know, won't we? 
Not that we will hiss or boo or anything like that, but we will just quietly know that they arrived late and missed the answer to that question. So and this question has just dogged me right since the Rosie Project was, was first published. In fact, Anne, who is lurking in the audience here, right in the back corner, and will happily sign, countersign copies of Two Steps Forward. She's both my co-author and my wife. That Anne and I were both um, on um, breakfast television, ABC, with Virginia Trioli, talking about um, Two Steps Forward, the new book, about a year or so ago. And Virginia's asked us a whole bunch of questions, and we've given them a whole bunch of answers, and then she spins in, sharp focus on me, and says, so, Graham, here comes the question. What about the Rosie Project movie? <laughs> and I gave, you the, I gave her the answer I'll give to you guys in a moment, because you all wanted to know, didn't you? Um, and when they put it up on the website, what it came up was, Graham Simpson talks about the Rosie Project movie. No mention of two steps forward. And Anne is sitting there just sort of looking decorative and dumb in the background. Like, <laughs> what am I here for? Why am I even, why am I? They eventually put the whole thing up. So that thanks to my publicist of text, Jane Watkins, who's also lurking in the audience somewhere. So you know, half the audience are friends and associates and wives and those things tonight. So the answer to the question, well, some of you will know that I originally wrote The Rosie Project as a screenplay. Why? Are there any screenwriters here in the audience? You're just scratching your head there? Good, good, good. Because I wrote it because I figured it would be easier to write a screenplay than a novel. And I was dead right. Because a screenplay is not the whole thing. It's an invitation to collaborate, they say. A whole bunch of other people will come together to make the final product, which is the movie. And some of those are going to be billed higher than the screenwriter. Who can name five screenwriters? You can name one. You know, actors, yes, actors, directors, producers. Well, Steven Spielberg up there, and Tom Cruise, and whatever people who write movies. So it's so it's an invitation to collaborate. It's no it's no big deal to do relative to writing a whole novel, which is all yours. The only problem is that it's much harder to get a movie made than a book published. So I should have thought of that because here I was with my award-winning screenplay that nobody wanted to make. Because think of the last movie you saw. I just about guarantee it was an adaptation of a best-selling novel. Why? The studios let the, the public do the hard work for them and the publishers do the hard work. Fifty Shades of Grey? No, I didn't get it either, but let's make the movie because enough people have bought it. Or this is wonderful. Let's wait and see what the public thinks. They didn't think it was wonderful. Why make the movie? So I did the obvious thing and rewrote, after five years, I rewrote The Rosie Project as a best-selling novel. And Sony duly bought the rights, and now we've been waiting and waiting. And in the meantime, The Best of Adam Sharp has been optioned to Tony Collette and Vocab Films. Um, Two Steps Forward has been optioned to um, Fox Searchlight with Ellen DeGeneres slated to produce. These are like tax lotto tickets in the back pocket. You learn after a while. We had Jennifer Lawrence attached to the Rosie Project and we celebrated. She dropped out and we uncelebrated or whatever you do, you commiserated. We had Richard Linklater attached to Direct. We had um, oh, that, that other guy, um, what's his name, Anne? Ryan Reynolds, yeah, yeah. All, all, all these, all these, fun. everybody you think of who might, you know, who might be in that movie has probably read the script at some stage, all the Benedict Cumberbatches and that sort of thing of this world. They, it's been a problem. They want A-list actors to play Don and Rosie. They need someone who can really be a Don, someone who can really be a Rosie, available at the same time. 
happy with the, the terms, the deal, all that, and so far, quite literally, the stars have not aligned. So I keep walking around with those tax dotted tickets in my back pocket, um, hoping that one day one of them will come through, but not relying on not losing any sleep over it. So that's the answer to the question. I think we've got something like a quorum out there. Late arrivers, no problems. You didn't miss anything really serious except for what you caught the tail end of. So let's get the evening properly underway. And it is my great pleasure to introduce from the Richmond Library. Let's have, let's give it up for Natasha. Come on. 